Hey everybody, welcome to another recording and of the Old Man Running Podcast. Sam and I are with you today with a special guest. Um, if you don't recognize that face, you will afterwards because you're going to go right to his YouTube channel and start binging on it because he has some of the best running content on YouTube. Andrew yes. Snow, uh, can you introduce yourself, Andrew? Sure. <clears throat> There's loads of ways I could introduce myself. I'll give you the short one. Um, I start, I've been running my whole life. I'm, tw I'm coming on 39 pretty soon. I started running when I was 11 and never stopped. Wow. Um, it was, you know, cross-country, indoor, outdoor track. And then after college, I went to the roads and did half marathons, marathons, and then it kind of evolved into ultras and on the trail in the mountains. And that's what I do now, um, basically exclusively ultras on tra single track trails in the mountains. That's what I personally love. Uh, but I coach people on anything from, uh, I have a couple 800 runners, but mostly 5K through ultra marathon. Um, so distance runners, middle distance runners. And the, uh, the approach that I have that we could dive even deeper into later, but the basic approach that I have is sort of the overlap, the Venn diagram of three different things. And a lot of coaches will um, focus on the training because it seems like that's what a runner needs. Tell me what workouts to do, coach. So we do that too, but lots of coaches do that and there's lots of different approaches. Um, they all share some fundamentals, at least all the successful programs of all time in, in the book. Uh, I do break that down like the history of training and extracting the fundamentals, but that's only one part of the equation. There's really three parts to a breakthrough in your performance. One is your training and I believe that that is the third most important of the three. The other two are how is your health? What do you put in? So what are you eating? Uh, are you sleeping well? Are you recovering well? Uh, things like this really do drive your ability to increase your volume, stay injury free, stay light, run fast, uh, be healthy, have longevity in your career, stay consistent, all of these things. And then even more important than that is like, why are we doing this? So you could call that mindset. And a term that I like that's maybe even more accurate is emotion set. Because if you have a reason that's strong enough to do something, you'll do it. And there's no like motivation needed. You only need to be motivated if you don't really want to do it. So if we have a really strong reason that enriches your life so that you're not robbing yourself of other things that are more important, like time with your kids or quality at work or sleep or something like that, um, if you have strong enough reason that, reason that drives you and you have a healthy body that can recover and perform well consistently over time and we stack on superior training to that, that trifecta right there creates astonishing breakthroughs in your performance where I've had runners who probably the most standout case that I have is a runner who at age 47 took 55 minutes off of his marathon in nine weeks. And he wasn't a wow. slouch either. He, he got down to a 303. So we're not talking like a 10-hour marathon to a nine-hour marathon. Uh, so the sky's really the limit, but only when we overlap all three. If you're not going to do hard intervals hard enough to take an hour off your marathon. But when we change the, that total structure, you can make big leaps in your performance. Absolutely. So that's my introduction. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I definitely am a believer in that and, uh, and proof of that because I didn't start getting better until I brought on nutrition and recovery and making sure that I'm available to run. Um, right. And yeah. I never had a problem with motivation. I mean, I, my, my wife's not, yeah, she can't hear. I think about <laughs> running all the time, right? So like 95% of the day, I'm thinking about how can wow. I do something for running, right? We created, a, we created this channel. I had a YouTube channel before just reviewing recovery products. Um, started running myself uh, 2017 after some uh, health condition that forced me to get healthier. And running basically saved my life. Uh, just yes. coming back into, uh, you know, into a strength. Sam is also uh, in the same situation. He joined running late in life um, due to um, requiring to get healthier after... Sam had some parts replaced. Um, yes. I think they were hips, right? So yeah, Sam both hips. Okay. Sam has new hips. I have a new half of a new heart, and uh, between the two of us, we're you know we're we're bionic. Hey, when we both <laughs> die, they can put us together and make something. Make another one, yeah. We'll make a robot, yeah. Okay. Mar so, titanium, so we're good. Yeah. Um, so I have all my parts except for a little piece of heart, but um, that's how I got in. That's how I got into running. Just the heart, you know. Yeah, just, yeah, that's just a small piece. But um, I appreciate what you say about the the three point, the three pillars of running, and that's something that I've experienced from watching your channel. 
you know, just looking at uh, the playlists that you've cr created on Run Elite. Um, I also am a big fan of that you replace the I with a number one. Let me ask you that. Why did you do that? Hold on a second. Are we talking about in Run Elite here? Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's a one, isn't it? Right, that's not an I, that's a one. Um, we can roll with that if you like, but it's just the font. <laughs> oh, okay. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. I like it though. But, oh my gosh. wait, hold on. That's a kind of cool thing for us to maybe even jump into. I want you guys to ask me whatever questions you want here, but uh, I'll just make a little point on that. There's, there's a part of our brain called the reticular activating system. Have, have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. It yes okay oh, yeah. um, so one of you yes one no it's basically your selective focus so there's a million things that you could focus on your heart's beating there's a smell in the air the air conditioner comes on a car goes by the lights on you're itchy you got clothes like million things that you could focus on but mm -hmm. of course that wouldn't be an efficient use of our like CPU of our brain so our brain knows what to focus on based off of what we believe has value so like the best example I've heard of this is like when you get a new car you start driving down the road and then now you see your car everywhere. They were there, but you see them because you now associate value to that thing. So I think it's kind of cool. Um, you saw one on that. I actually haven't heard that before, but it, it's really cool. It just shows, I'm not exactly sure what it shows. We don't need to like dive into it as if I know, but um, it just does show like a selective focus it has the ability to govern like what we see and what we focus on. Um, and that, that can be very important for our training. Like do we focus on what we want or do we focus on what we want to avoid? And the truth is that most people, um, not just in their running, but with finances, relationships, health, everything, it's like, if you ask someone what they want, they'll tell you what they don't want, nine out of 10 times. Yeah. And um, it shows where their selective focus is. And part of the way to like break through in any area of your life, I believe, is cultivating that selective focus to be on what is wanted, not on the absence of what is not wanted. So, little comment on, on that, I thought it was fun. Okay, I could have sworn it was a one and I was, Waiting it looked for an like amazing it. story. That's what I focused on too. I'm here for you. Cool. You're number one, and that's why yes. elite. Okay. You know, you can only be one elite, and that's why there's a one. I love it. It is. It looks like a one to me now that I'm looking at it. Yes, <laughs> we'll take it. Yes. Not okay. the Mandela effect, but it, it looks like a one. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so there you go, guys. Uh, myth busted, right here <laughs> on 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 the channel. If you thought it was a one, it is a one. It is. That's it. If you're it number like one. one me. Yeah. Yes. Right. So um, what was your impetus of starting the YouTube channel? You've been doing this for about five years or so. You have, um, I think I recorded about, um, I, I counted about seven, how many? About 100, uh, over 100 videos, 176 videos. Oh. Um, when, when did you, I know when you started it, but what, why did you start it? It just seemed like a good long-term idea. Yeah. So you can have a lot of information. You could be the best in the world at teaching whatever, whittling, whatever it is. And if you're just like in your house, nobody knows. And then you can call out to the world and say, hey, I know how to whittle really well. Come one, come all. And people are like, what? Huh? But uh, in the long term, if you just provide a lot of value, then there's a number of things that come from that long term. Uh, from a business point of view, it's called content marketing, right? Instead of just like running ads or something like that, you just give a value and grow an audience. And naturally the people who resonate with your value will wanna watch more, reach out to right. you, all these things. So from a business point of view, it's a long-term approach. Um, can't do it quickly, it takes years to, to build something like that. But even more importantly is that uh, it's timeless. It's a way to give contribution. Like I think when we get to the end of our lives, um, doesn't, you know, it's nice to have the things you want, do the things you want, experience the things you want, but like really when we leave, you know, we don't get to take it with us. Uh, we get to take mm -hmm. who we become with us and you get to leave your contribution. And um, YouTube is pretty cool. Assuming YouTube sticks around, it's the second biggest uh, search platform in the world next to Google, I believe right. it still is. Yeah. And um, doesn't matter if I'm sleeping, if I'm traveling or if I'm dead you can still give a value. And I think that is a really cool thing. So that's why yeah. I started. Yeah, I appreciate your answer. Um, the same reason why Sam and I started All Men Running, uh, we needed an outlet to share what we've learned in the years of our running experience. Um, mostly because you know we started late in life and mm -hmm. some people 
didn't start running when they were 11 years old. At 11 years old, I, the best thing I could do was kick a ball, I think. I was an excellent kickball player. <laughs> oh, and I absolutely, I, when I was, I'm retired military, so we had to run. It was, I wouldn't want to say force, but you had to run. You had to do rucks and all this kind of crap. And I hated that. Yeah. But now I'm doing it on my terms. Yeah. And it's all the difference, right? So it, you can, you could go out for a five mile run. And if you have to, versus if you choose to, it's the same five mile run. You moved your feet the same, your heart rate went up the same. It's the same training effect. Yet one of them is sustainable indefinitely until you need to change your mind. One of them, you can't wait to stop and get out of there. So which one is gonna, are you gonna stick with long-term? I mean, obviously the answer is the one that you enjoy, but when you stick with it long-term, right. you'll get a superior result. So, and even if you got the same result. So Sam, even if you had to do those runs versus wanted to, you might still get the same time on the clock, the same training effect. I don't think you would, but even if you did, no. still, then you get to the end of your life or the end of your running career or the end of the year. And when you look back, it's like, which of those lives did you wanna, which one is the life you wanna live? Right. So if we have to, not only do we probably get an inferior result, but it doesn't matter because if we believe that the process is the goal, we can talk more about that. I believe it is. I think most people acknowledge that to a degree. Then having to do something just feels yucky. Who wants to live their life having to do anything? Right. Right. So if you're saying if, if you really want to, the experience and the benefit you get is going to be stronger than if you go at it with a remorseful attitude. Well, it's because it's your choosing. You want to do it. That is the result. You, you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the result, right? So I think, Scott, what you, I think what I'm hearing when you say that is like the result, and we'll say like the objective result, like the time on the clock or the distance run, I would say probably it's gonna be better when you're doing it when you're doing it with joy and you want to probably, but even if you got the same result, then it would be, you say like the result you get, but I would say the result you get is how you feel in your life, like the experience of your life, not yeah. on the one day, the time on the digital scoreboard that nobody cares about. Nobody Absolutely. cares about. Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, would you rather, would you rather run um, like a, a, I don't know what your, your guys' times are, you don't even have to share them here, but like someone who's like a, wanting to get a sub three marathon, would you rather live a fulfilling life that is healthy where you progress and you learn, you connect with others, you have great experiences, you execute intelligently and you run really well and run a three hour flat 30 second, or would you rather have to run, alienate your family, underperform at work, be tired all the time, be miserable, not like the training, get over injury after injury after injury, push, push, push really hard and get a 258. It's like, which one of those, yeah. The, yeah, the pretty, time is not the goal. And I think absolutely. I, make it, I make it kind of extreme like that because it's just so easy to see that the time is not, get the time also, mm -hmm. get it. Like that's why we're here to like achieve and do things. But if you don't like who you're becoming in the process, that's like the difference between success and fulfillment. You can be successful, yeah. but how many successful people, you know, God forbid, like delete themselves. People with right. lots of money, lots of fame, mm -hmm because they weren't fulfilled. That's very, that's yeah. well said, Andrew, well said. Yeah, Sam and I often talk about the hardest part of the training is really just getting to the starting line. And not necessarily the hardest part, but um, that's the fulfilling part. Being, going through the training, the recovery, overcoming the injuries, and being ready to go. And then the race is the celebration. When you get to that finish line, whatever the number is, that's what it is. You did your best, and then you'll be yes. satisfied. Often I fall short of my goal, my A pace goal. And you mentioned somewhere, and I wanted to bring this up later on, about A and B goal, where you really should just have an A goal, or it's too confusing to have multiple goals because then your in, your internals just kind of fight those goals. And I've been living that lately. You know I'm saying the, a goal of this event is just one thing. I'm not saying, hey, I want to run five miles in 40 minutes or 50 minutes. I I pick something that I want to feel, I want to smile the whole time and I want to make sure that my form is good. And I'll focus on that and not necessarily how much time it took me to finish a certain workout. And that's being realistic yeah. for yourself. So uh, I think I lost track of my own thought, but... Um, you were talking about A versus B goals and yeah. focusing on the process. So do you remember where you said that? Was that in a video or in the book? Yeah, was both. In both, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I understand what people are doing when they have an A goal and a B goal. I'm not against B goals, but I am against settling for a B goal for the one thing that you really want. 
but you can hit B goals along the way to it, but they're more of like signposts, goal markers, uh, whatever, road flags, what, what's the term for that? Um, goal, mm -hmm. whatever. They're markers along the way to the thing that you want. And I don't think we should compromise on the thing we want at all, because then when it gets hard, you'll settle. You'll have a reason. Oh, if you're trying to like break a three hour marathon and there's a headwind, you'll, you won't do it and it's not your fault because there's a headwind. Or if you sprain your ankle six weeks before, it's not my fault, I sprained my ankle. But if you decide that you're going to do it, it's scary because you could fail. But if you decide you're doing it, not have an A goal, B goal, this is what I'm doing and nothing else. Then if you sprain your ankle six weeks before, guess what? You cross train like a beast. You change your nutrition. You focus on your education. You get yourself back into gratitude as opposed to pessimism. You study the course. You lift weights. You get a physiotherapist. You do dry needling. You, all these resourcefulness things that you can do get unlocked because there's no beagle. There's a beagle. You just take it and say, well, that's what I could do this time. And you don't need to do that. It's kind of um, a little more extreme, but you can just be as extreme as you want. It's just about being honest with yourself about what you really want. And when I have conversa initial conversations with runners, I always ask, one of the first questions is, what is it that you're trying to achieve? And more than 90%, nearly all, nearly all, not literally all, say it's a time on the clock that ends conveniently in a zero, zero, or a nice round number. And it's like, well, why do you want that? Because, and we go deeper and deeper and deeper. And eventually it's never the, see, I lost track of what we're, I was talking about now. A goals, B goals, yeah. Um, but if you get down to what the goal really is, and oftentimes it's like, um, I'm, I want to improve my health and be here to see my grandchildren grow up. And they think running is a way to health. Ah, so it's not the time on the clock. You believe running will make you healthier. Okay, so in that sense, it wouldn't make sense to hammer on the intervals and get faster if you keep eating pizza and drinking beer, which would rob you of your health. It's like, those aren't, you can get the time on the clock and still not get the thing that you wanted. So we have to identify the thing you want. And once that's identified, I do not recommend at all compromising on that whatsoever. Don't make a B goal for that. You can if you want. Um, but in that sense, there should be an A goal that is clearly defined. And uh, instead of B goal, let's just have markers along the way. But like in a given race, if it's a peak race, if it's a tune-up race or something that you don't care that much about, it's for fun, have an A goal and B goal. But like at the Olympics, you know, is there an A goal and B goal? Maybe, but not for the person who believes they're going to win. When Usain Bolt steps on the trap, track, does he have a B goal? No, he goes to win. Right? When Kiptum ran his world record marathon, was there a B goal? When no. Kipchoge did the Ineos breaking two, was there a B goal? No, it was, it was do it or die. Right. Did Prefontaine, but, and they all did it, but did yeah. Prefontaine have a B goal at the Olympics? No, he was always a goal. And he got fourth place. And for that reason, we love him. He got really pissed off at himself because he was looking for an external thing. Fine, fair enough. But we respect him because, you know, oh, I got goosebumps. Look at that. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about Prefontaine's Munich race, uh, even the commentator said this, um, that, you know, he, he made a really big drive from a, with a mile to go, okay? With 600 to go, he made a, a massive kick down the back stretch with 600 to go. It was like all out sprint. Then he made another massive kick with 300 to go. I'm getting goosebumps again. It's like he could have ensured a bronze medal. Absolutely. He probably could have ensured a silver medal had he not made that kick at 600 to go. Or instead of kicking at 300 to go, if he, cause then it killed him. He kicked again with like 100 to go and he died. If he just omitted one of those kicks and slow burned it, he'd have got at, at least a bronze medal, if not a silver, but he had no, it wasn't about that. It was about, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. Like somebody may, may beat me, but they're gonna have to bleed to do it. Today's a good day to die, right? Mm -hmm. There was no beagle. And for that reason, even though he didn't get the medal, any medal whatsoever or any world record or any world championship, we love him and immortalize him. Yeah. We respect right. that, I think, very like, deeply. We respect going for the one thing. It's a masculine thing. Like Prefontaine, I bet he was, I know, he was really good with the ladies too. He was like a, a, he was a baller. He was a badass in all mm -hmm. kinds of ways because people are just attracted to the kind of um, you know, masculine, feminine energies. He embodied a masculine energy, which is like knowing what I want, taking no substitutes and everything into one thing. And that's cool. That's why they made two movies about him, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. People appreciate those attitudes, right? Uh, someone who they want either aspire to be or they look can look up to because I that guy is living the, his life, 
the true sense of what he wants to be. And he's happy that way. We think he's happy that way, at least. We can't ask him now, unfortunately, but... Uh, right. Um, uh, we we yeah. can watch, watch the movies again. I did watch Without Limits a few weeks ago. It was what a great a, movie. I could quote movie. that whole movie verbatim, word for word, the whole yeah. thing. That was such a good movie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those, those are great movies. So I, I appreciate the A and B goal, and I think there's a company, and I don't remember who it is, but doesn't someone have a phrase, never settle? And I think that's kind of in that frame of don't, don't settle for anything but the best for yourself. And um, I'm not sure if that's 100% in par with what we're talking about, but that's what made me think about when you were talking about you know, settling. A B goal is settling or coming up with an excuse for not making that A goal. Yeah, and the way that you show up when you make a decision, so never settling, like what does that mean? If you're really not gonna settle, if there's like a short-term and a long-term approach to this, let's say, I mean, you can pick an industry. My brain is kind of going to like dating right now because um, settle is like settling down, but it could be with anything. It could be with finances, uh, but running, anything. Um, let's say you wanna make a million dollars. You could, are, is it settling to make only half a million? It's like on what time frame? Because if someone said they wanna make a, a million dollars in a year, and then they made 500,000 on their first day, and you ask them, did you hit your goal? No, so did you fail? I mean, the way I phrase that, it's kind of easy to see you're succeeding, but a lot of people would, when, when it comes to running, okay, let me change the analogy. When it comes to running, uh, I'll ask this often. Someone is like a 430 marathoner, they wanna run a 315 marathon, okay? Uh, and I say, Let, what if you made a lot of progress and we measured four months from now and you ran a 325? You gave it everything you got and you ran a 325. Is that success or failure? And 75% of the time, maybe more, they'll say, well, I didn't hit my goal. Like, that's, that's failure. I'm not happy with that. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. So in four months, you can go from a 430 to a 3, what I say, 25? And you're telling me that you're not fulfilled by that? Nothing will fulfill you. Nothing. All it means is that we measured prematurely. Because train for another three months or six months or a right. year or two years. 100%. And then... So if you measure your success, even the A goal, if you have an A goal, if you run a race and you don't hit that A goal time or distance or place or whatever it is, who cares? You measured early. If your belief is that I will not settle, therefore keep going in the, even in the presence of evidence that shows that I'm not at my goal, that is not settling. But we have to release the time frame because maybe it'll take another month, maybe it'll take another year, or maybe it'll never happen. And right. because look at Kiptum, which just happened. You guys are aware, I'm sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. So for those, maybe for people who are listening who don't know, Kelvin Kiptum just died in a car accident, age 24, world record holder, almost certainly going to break two hours in a standard race and almost a shoe-in for the gold medal at the Olympics, which is saying a lot because he'd be racing Kipchoge. Right. But I think we all kind of believe he'd have won, including Kipchoge. Yes, um, yeah. so, absolutely. But look at that. He never got... Did Kiptum ever even toe the line at an Olympic event? Never. Did he ever get a gold medal? No. I don't, he, did he ever get a world championship medal? No. None of these things. He did get the world record, pretty cool, but only recently. So he never made it to the finish line, let alone the start line. But when we think of Kiptum, did he fail? No. Hell no. Like, not even no. a question. So there's absolute proof that not only is the, the end goal not the goal, there's proof, right? What else do we need? But it also means the A goal is nonsense because he never even had it. He never did the A goal, yet we still honor him. He will forever be remembered. I mean, it's quite dramatic. They'll probably make movies about him. Um, and the A goal not, not only wasn't hit, but never even attempted. A goal, B goal, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's who you become in the process. Yeah. But who he became was focusing on the A goal, not a B goal. So that is arguably, you could say, that is a success who you become in the pursuit of the thing that you really want without lying to oneself or others. That's kind of it. And then yeah. who you become is the prize because you, and then if you get the A goal, cool. Awesome. It's like the, the cherry on top. Yeah. It's about the journey. And I think Sam and I both, we love the training and right. I, the way I look at it is um, I have a goal, um, but I'm not so steadfast on, you know, achieving that goal. 
if, the, if I've done the training right, if I've slept well, if I've recovered well, if I followed my nutrition plan, then I know whatever that time is when I cross that finish line is the best I did. And if I feel I did the best I could, then I met my A goal to me. Because what else can you do? Right. I'm right. not going to complain. Oh, I wish I was faster. Right? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. I wish I was faster, but I'm not. I'm as fast as I'm going to be right now. I will get faster, and I am getting faster, even even in the age that I have. I mean, I've every marathon I've, except for one, was a shorter, was a, a faster di- um, time frame. Um, the only one was New York when I got hurt, and I had to walk up Fifth Avenue instead of running up Fifth Avenue. But um, other than that, I've always improved my marathon time in the seven that I've done. Wonderful. That's a good feeling, huh? Just yeah, it's great. Keep yeah. PRing. And yeah. there's not much reason why a person can't continue to PR pretty late into life. And people like to argue this because you say, are you really saying that someone in their 30s, that someone in their 60s can be as good as they were in their 30s? Yeah. I've got a great video on this, uh, which I'll, maybe we put in the show notes after this. Uh, it's called Age Isn't the Limiter of Performance that we used to think it was. There's two on this, actually. And... Mm-hmm. The only exception to if you're 60, could you beat your 30-year-old self? The answer is no, only if you had trained very, very, very diligently at full and you maximized your full capacity throughout your 20s and 30s and really maximize it, then possibly not. But who does that? Um, Maybe Olympic world-class runners and even them, did they really maximize it? Maybe they got close. But if you rewind 30 years in your life, Were you really focusing? I mean, because in your 60s, you could run twice the volume you did in your 30s. You could train more intelligently. You can improve your diet. You can improve your recovery. You can improve your pacing. All and kick the butt of the version of yourself you were when you were 30. And this is absolutely true. One of my runners, I'll tell you about two of my runners real quick, um, because they're exceptional. Both of these I've been working with for over four years. Um, One of my runners, Heidi, uh, she is... Uh, 47. I think she's going on 48 right now. And every year, the last four years, she's PR'd in her marathon. And then some of the years, other races too, like a half or a 10K. Um, But recently, her most recent marathon at age 47, she took off 20 minutes from her lifetime PR that she set when she was 27. And she didn't, and she was training seriously this whole time. She ran competitively. She's been, she's very consistent, runs about 80 miles a week, every week. Jeez, 80 miles? Year, year round, and does Pilates and strength training, and goes on walks, and has a very clean, healthy diet, and does her strides, because she sends me her training every Monday for years, and I see it. It's like, like clockwork. And still, she took 20 minutes off at age 47. Now, we're not supposed, supposed to run faster at 47 than we did at 27, especially if we've been training well that whole time. She did. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you about one of my other runners, Tim, who's 52. We've been working together four years as well. He started at a 2.53 marathon. We got him to a 2... Uh, <laughs> he started at 2.55, I think. We got him to a 2.53, a 2.48, 2.43, and now sub 2.40. Each year as he gets older. So he's older, he's 52, and he's beating his 48-year-old self and his 30-year-old self and his 20-year-old self. And he got, two years ago, he got a 10K, lifetime 10K PR, and he used to run the 10K on the track. And he was like 49 at the time. He got a lifetime PR. What? You can run well as you're older. You can run really well. And it it improves as the distance gets gets longer. So um, if you look at the the stats in ultra running, uh, once a year, Ultra Running Magazine publishes like the world rankings and all sorts of events. And in some of the events, the number one in the world above everybody else is 50 years old. That happened this past year in 2023. You can be ranked number one in the world at 50. And most of the top rankings uh, are people in their 40s. Some of them in their like their late 30s. Almost nobody in their 20s. So like as the distance in- increases, and a-, a lot of like adult runners are marathoners, um, you're the <laughs> being able to like slowing down as you get older is less and less and less relevant. But I'll tell you why. Like the main reason is because as you get older, a 60-year-old is more likely to have 60 years of accumulated abusing their body, drinking booze, eating bullshit food putting on extra weight, you're more likely to see a 50-year-old who's overweight than a 20-year-old who's overweight. I mean, these days, I don't even know, but traditionally, right? right? Because So that person, they will run slower, almost ubiquitously, because they've been under-sleeping, complaining, stressed out, 
for 50 or 60 years. The 20-year-old hasn't. So the 20-year-old will likely beat them. But if at 60, you don't do those things and you take care of yourself and you don't carry that accumulated toxicity and baggage, you can run very fast. Yeah, I think both Sam and I are, are experiencing that, you know. We are. We, we started are. late, but from the, between my first marathon and my last marathon, it, there's, a, there's a difference of almost an hour. Yes. And now, what was the time gap between those two? The first uh, and the last one. My very first marathon was 5.03. I mean, what uh, was the date? Um, the date was, I'm sorry, that was in, it was in the fall of 2018. That was my first okay. marathon. My last marathon was CIM in December, and I did 4.23. Yeah, man. So older awesome. and faster. Older yes. And faster. And I still have yeah. aspirations to make that first number a three. I don't, you know. 359.58 would be fine. I don't want to beat it by one All second. Right. I want to, under two seconds and I'll, I'm good. That's my, that's my <laughs> lifetime. I don't want to just, I don't want to eke by because then, so yeah, so I do have uh, aspirations for sub four and I think I could do it based on the training that we do. Both Sam and I run, you know, 30, 40, um, you know, up to 50 miles a week. Um, we're both fairly injury free because we have the experience of not getting injured. Uh, right. If I feel a niggle or some kind of issue, I, I usually take care of it right away. I you know, generally regularly get either massages or some kind of leg revival from a PT. I have a massage gun, a foam roller, a cold plunge. I loved your chapter on cold plunging. Cold uh, plunging, yeah. high level stuff you got going on there. Yeah. So, yeah, we, yeah, we're, we, we take care of ourselves because we yes, have to. We um, you know, our bodies are not, they're not brand new. So we have to, we, you know, we're held together with duct tape and, and, and Elmer's glue. And I really metal, metal pins a, in some cases. Yeah. yeah. That's a big plug for the mature runners because we recognize, you know, this isn't right or I got this pain here. And when we're done with our long run or whatever, we take care of it. Yeah. And we might modify for the next few runs and not go bust out, you know, bust ass like a 20-year-old would. Yeah, and, and as, as coaches, Sam and I, we also, you know, we can give that experience. But most of the time, you know, if I have, a, I have one athlete who is young, is in their 30s, and they're much faster than me, and it took a little bit for them to trust me because they said, Scott, you're a runner, but, you know, you run a marathon in four hours. I run a marathon in two and a half hours. I must know more than you. And that was a... That was a, it was a conversation that was kind of touchy at, at some point, but I can right. imagine. Um, you know. yeah, it's, it's, interesting. Like it's, it's not true that the faster runner necessarily knows more because if you look at coaches, um, you don't necessarily need a coach who's faster than you like uh, Renato Canova. The pictures I've seen of him, uh, he's one of the world's most successful coaches and he doesn't look like he's a very fast runner. No. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I think of like uh, gymnast coaches, like one of the most successful gymnast coach was the, the guy who coached the U.S. women's Olympic team in 96 and for like decades before that. I think right. there was some kind of scandal later on, but anyway, he was a successful coach, but he was like a pudgy old dude. He can't right. do those backflips. It doesn't matter. It's a different skill set. Yeah, because the, the coaches in those, it's, it's up here. It's like it's, it's, knowledge. it's uh, telling you how to think. Um, don't, you know, get you excited about the efforts and the workouts and you know, if you see someone begrudgingly do workouts, then that's that's something that you, a coach is going to be able to talk to them about. Can I teach you how to move your feet faster? Um, I can tell you about the benefits of cadence, but I don't really understand. I don't know if I could tell you how to move your feet faster. Yeah. Uh, per se. Yeah. You already um, know how to do that. There's a lot of, you know, each coach is going to resonate with a certain kind of runner. So it's like other good coaches and bad coaches. Um, I guess so, but like if we most are good, well-intentioned, and they're just going to resonate with a certain kind of runner. But there's a there's a metric. I want to be like a, a little careful here, but th this is interesting. It's also a good talking point for us here. Is that uh, just from like a physics point of view? I did come across a website which I won't name. I don't even remember it really, so I couldn't name it. But I've heard this concept a lot that uh, running is you want to push off the ground because we're here's the ground we're running so you want to push off the ground so that you travel further this way and i've even seen uh, an entire coaching program that was based off of 
that have made the claim that you want to strengthen in the horizontal plane because what causes running motion is friction between your foot and the ground pushing like this. And I'm like, oh, geez, this, it's so untrue. It's not like from physics. It's not true at all. The, the, um, I've got videos on this too where I, like, I show it. But you, if that were true, that pushing off the ground, because that's how a car moves, friction between the ground. It's in continuous contact, though, and it rolls. We don't have wheels, and we're not in continuous contact with the ground. We bounce one leg to the next, to the next, to the next. It's a vertical force. It's a vertical force. Well, how do we move forward then? You simply lean at the ankles and fall forward while jumping vertically. Not this way, not this way, certainly. You jump mm -hmm. vertically while falling forward. That's why as you run faster, you lean forward. And in fact, that's what running is. If you stand straight and you try to run forward by like pulling, you can't do it. The only way you can start moving forward is to put your center of, of mass, put your center of gravity over your center of mass. Mm -hmm. Gotta lean forward. So you start to fall until you're gonna to fall to where you have to pick your leg up and then you catch yourself underneath you, boom. Um, so that's, it's kind of a tangent here, but yeah. when it comes to like competency of coaches, there's some things that I use to just kind of like listen to like, does this person know what they're talking about? Um, that's a good one right there. But it's like the reason I brought it up, there's like maybe many things like this and I don't know everything, but you know, uh, it was, it, I wanted to bring that up because it's a good talking point also about the mechanics of running, that this is, like a, this is a vertical force, not a horizontal force, right. um, which we can go all kinds of ways without. You can talk about strength training, mechanics, all of those things, but yeah. right, I'll I've stop heard that someone, tangent there. But. I've heard someone ref, uh, refer to running as falling gracefully. Exactly. Falling lowered gracefully, right? That's well said, Scott. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I came up with that, but yeah, I did actually. No one who's listening to this is going to check the fact. I, I invented falling gracefully. <laughs> um, I like it. So both, yeah, we, we both uh, enjoy helping other people. Right? As, as you get older, and I think I probably get this from my wife, who's a, a life coach, you have so much knowledge in your head, and you at 39 have a lot of knowledge. And like you said about creating the YouTube channel, you want to share it because that that's somewhat of your legacy. Um, and it feels good to make someone a better person. Um, I can't, I can't uh, train someone to be a better financially. Um, what can I help them do? I can help them be a better programmer because I'm a programmer. But my affection, I don't love programming as much as I love running. So that's what I gravitated towards. And that's why we became run coaches um, because we want to give back. And it's such a rewarding feeling to get a high five from a runner. Today I had the benefit for the first time. I ran with two of my athletes. Um, I only have about five or so right now, and two of them joined me on a run today. And um, the thought was, I want to be a coach today. I don't want to just go out and do five easy miles. So what could I do? We passed a hill. And I said, you guys want to do some hill sprints? And they're like, what's that? So we're going to run up that hill as fast as we can gradually we're not going to do it initially we're going to jog up the first time but by the third one we want to go a little bit faster each time and when they were done they thought this is the best workout i ever had because i i would have just ran past that hill and i got so much more out of this five mile run because we decided to make a left and run up that hill and that just made me feel really good that he took the time to say that and give me a pound at the end and said i want to work out with you again i know you're building workouts for me but you pushed me today. I ran faster than I normally good for do. You, Scott. I feel good about. It. I'm not saying this to pat myself on the shoulder, but I'm saying what a coach does for their athletes. And, and then I knew we were talking to you, and I said, "I'm going to have the best day ever." Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so. so that's the difference of, like Sam and I were talking at the beginning of this. The difference of having to do something and getting to do something. If this were a job, if coaching were a job that you didn't want to do, uh, you probably wouldn't have done that. You'd be just looking at the clock, wanting to get back as soon as you can. So you collect your check and get out of there and then do the things you really want to do, like drink beer or whatever, you know, but, mm -hmm. but when you enjoy the thing you do for the sake of doing it, that sounds an awful lot like the process to me and you show up differently. Yeah. And through that showing up, people can feel it. We know, yeah. you know, if someone's there, if a used car salesman is trying to get his commission or trying to get you the right car, you know, we're not stupid. Yeah. So, right. The enthusiasm comes through. Right. Um, certainly people could tell that, yeah, I want to be there. Right. Uh, one thing and you, as you're a, able to influence them because they have rapport. They yeah. feel they can trust you. And so you can actually have a relationship that's meaningful. 
Right. Because, yeah. But because you love it. You, you, you chose to do the thing you love. Yeah. And okay. also, I, I put my foot where my mouth is in a sense where I didn't just go tell them to run up the hill. I did it with them. Right. Yeah. So, you got to uh, lead I, by example. So uh, that, that was just, that was a rewarding experience in, in my short, you know, months of coaching was today. That's awesome, um, Scott. Good for thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. So there you go. Now, so far, I'm looking at the list of things to talk about, and we only talked about one of them. So we can have a part two. Or we can just ask you a few more questions. Yeah, go ahead. Pick uh, whatever you want. Random is okay. Yeah, so what did I write down? I, I'm looking at my notes. Um, <laughs> we, already, we already talked about give how you started give, give me something that maybe you haven't asked other people who have been on your show or something okay. that is like controversial, controversial or okay. something that the answer may, this may is kind of This is kind of controversial, and it's told okay. everywhere. I'm, okay. I'm positive you know 80-20. Oh, 80% sure. of your runs need to be easy. 20% hard. Some people don't believe you. They say, the only way I can get faster is to run faster. Mm-hmm. I don't practice to run slow, so why would I run mm-hmm. slowly? Yeah. What would you tell a, yeah. a, an athlete that says, I want to I run seven-minute pace. I don't want to run the 8.30 pace sure. that you told me to run. Well, I'd tell them, go ahead and run seven-minute pace, but I'm going to catch them in their own logic here. Here we go. Ready? Let's say someone's running 25 miles a week. Let's even say 30 miles a week, all right? And they say, well, I want to run those 30 miles a week at seven-minute pace because if I want to get faster, I should run faster. I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. I'd say they're probably going to get injured, burnout, or plateau if 100% of their running is done hard. But there is a good point that they're making. Okay, so you could run all 30 of those miles at seven-minute pace. Go ahead. But let's compare that with the we're going to clone you, make another version of you, the, per- the version of you who runs 30 of those miles at seven minute pace, but also 70 miles very easy at like 14 minute mile pace. Now, both of you did the 30 miles at the seven minute pace. One of you did an additional 70, stupid, slow, easy, almost a walk. Which one, assuming that you sleep and eat well to recover, which one is going to beat the other one in a marathon? Yeah. Kind That's of obvious. Point. Which one is also going to be more likely to get injured. Yeah. The first That's self-explanatory. Yeah. 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 So it's not like running fast is a bad idea. It's a good idea. And that's why um, one of the distinctions that I have in the training model that I teach, which I call the triphasic training model, just because there's three phases. um, And this isn't anything new. It's just I'm describing it in a way that a lot of people miss is that base training is the most important by far, period. No workouts needed if you really master your base training. Workouts help later. But in base training, it's not, a lot of times runners kind of assume, because it makes sense, foundational base training, let me just run easy and build up my volume and then cash it in for speed later. Okay, that's better than just training the same all the time, sure, um, because that's a form of periodization. But base training doesn't mean running easy all the time because that runner would be right to say, well, I want to get faster. Why would I run slow all the time? Yeah, they're right. So base training isn't that. Base training is non-specific running. So if you're a marathon runner wanting to run seven-minute pace, what's non-specific to that? Like still running, but non-specific. Might be running 11-minute miles and building up volume. Okay, that's non-specific, but it, it helps. But what else is non-specific? Running five 15 miles but won't I get injured or burnt out? No, not if you only do them 100 meters at a time and then take a break and do 100 meters at a time and take a break and do 100 meters at a time and rack up a giant bucket of, these are called strides, rack up a huge bucket of these every week, every month, for three months or six months. Now you have a big aerobic engine and you have a neuromuscular development from accumulating speed. None of it was hard, it was easy because the easy running is easy, provided you increase slowly. And the speed work is easy because they're so short, even though they're fast, they're so short and you take breaks. So it never gets hard. You just accumulate volume. And in that sense, 100% of your running is easy. 80% of it is slow. 20% of it is fast, but it's still easy. And in that sense, when we view it that way, 80-20 makes a lot of sense. Yes. yes. Wow. And, and I'll tell you, the, the main thing with 80-20 is that the key to that is the 80 And if you want to have your 20% be more volume, you need to increase 
the overall, you don't need to do more speed work or longer tempo runs or longer long runs. You need to increase the pool that you're drawing these from. So you're increasing your volume so that when you go to do a long run, it's a lower percentage of your entire run and therefore it's less taxing on your body and therefore it's easier to recover from and you can repeat it more often. Perfect, yeah. So, so that's like 80-20 yeah. makes sense in that way. Yeah. So, that's but excellent it, knowledge, man. It also doesn't mean run hard 20% of the time and easy 80% of the time. It also means over the grand course of a season. And in fact, for most of your season, it should arguably be mostly easy. But then at the end of your season, you might do a handful of workouts that are really giant, really big, and really tough. I call these your workouts that exist in the specific phase. And these workouts are baller. I, I give examples. Um, since, Scott, you've read the book, do you remember? I, I put the training of um, Abel Karui and Moses Mosop, who broke the world record at Boston, yes. and I think it was mm -hmm. 2011. Uh, other runners, too, but we actually have a, we can actually see their training month after month leading up to uh, world records and world championship wins. And they're doing, before that, they're doing base training. Like everything's easy, some speed, but it's easy. And then as they get close to the race, they're doing these monster workouts that are like two workouts in a day. So let me give a couple examples. One of their monster workouts, both of them did this, was 24.9, we'll call it 25. 25 mile run at marathon pace plus 10 seconds. So almost marathon pace, but for 25 miles in a training run. For goodness sake, if you can do that, you're probably about ready to hit that marathon pace. But mm -hmm. problem is, how many people can do a 25-mile marathon pace training run or just shy of it and not be total, totally spent and have to recover and be sore and not be able to sit on the toilet seat? And It's like these guys, they did that, but then they went out the next morning and ran a double and then again and again. And they just kept their volume up because they weren't killed by it. It was just a nice training effect that was pretty big. But because of their consistency and their volume and their speed development, it didn't kill them. It was just a big training effect. So we got to build up a foundation that's big enough that allows us to capitalize on the biggest workouts we can do without blowing ourselves up. That's what a yeah. foundation is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's the, base, that, that's the base phase. You can't go out and do that you know, in week three. That's something that's going to happen mm -hmm. down the road. Right. Because right. if you try to, you'll fail to – you'll either – one of uh, two things would happen. You would try to run that pace, but you wouldn't be able to hold it for 25 miles. You would hold it for eight miles or nine miles. And what does running eight miles at marathon pace have to do with running a marathon at marathon pace? Not much. But what does running 25 miles at marathon pace have to do with marathon pace? Quite a bit. So mm -hmm. if you try to do it early, you won't be able to do it in a specific dose. It's not specific. What does running a specific marathon pace for a handful of miles have to do with running it for a marathon? It's not that specific. Um, second is they either wouldn't be able to complete the distance or if they did the distance, the pace would suffer dramatically and now they're training a non-specific pace and they're burning themselves out and their injury risk goes sky high and then you, you, you'll, uh, you risk like endocrine system burnout, chronic fatigue, injury, mental, emotional burnout, all sorts of things. So that's why you can't do them too soon. You have to build the foundation and once you start doing those hard workouts, you will start getting fast. It works. It works for about six weeks and then you start to plateau. So we don't want to start peaking when our race is months and months and months away because you can't. You'll get better and you'll see your times getting faster, your heart rate will go down, everything, you'll feel you're winning and you think you can just keep that up for 12 weeks, 20 weeks, a year. No, you can't, you'll plateau. This is a remodeling. Like if you break your arm, God forbid, if you fall and break your arm, the doctor puts a cast on you for how long? Yeah, six weeks. Yeah, six weeks. Um, so both of you talked about uh, procedures that you had. Generally, what was like the acute phase of recovery? How long was that? Well, for my hips, it was uh, months, months and months. Okay. Yeah, mine was. Yeah, mine well, was these bad. are a little like complicated, so maybe that. Was yeah, they good. were. Yeah, um, my when I got my second hip replacement, it was close to a year. Okay. So sure, if you if you break a bone, how long is it casted? Six weeks, we kind of understand. Right. If you cut yourself really bad until it's totally healed. It's about six weeks. Why? That's how about how long it takes. Assuming you're not getting in your way with nutrition, that's a big one. Um, that's how long it takes. So that's how long it takes to remodel a certain tissue or neuro uh, neuromuscular intervention. You can maximize that in six weeks. Then what do you want to do? You have to have a new stimulus. Otherwise, you just plateau. So how do you have a new stimulus? You got to change the workouts. But you already did hyper specific workouts. So how are you going to change it? You're just gonna do more, well, good luck before you burn out or get injured or plateau. So you don't wanna do hyper-specific workouts too early because they'll get you peaked and now you're plateaued. And the only way you can get better is to do more. 
and more and more. And that's going to pop, my friend, eventually. It will. That's why we get injured. So we don't do that. You want to build the foundation, and then you want to stack support training on top of that. Then you want to take the last six weeks, and you do want to maximize those last six weeks and go big and really do ride that curve. And that's where like a massive breakthrough can happen. But we got to be mindful about this. And like hard, specific workouts early on will stagnate your long, they'll maximize your short-term progression, which is addictive. It's nice. It's like you get the short-term reward. But over the course of six months to a year or multiple years, it will stagnate your progression. Right. You guys keep talking. I have to plug this laptop in. Okay. <laughs> I'll be right back. Yeah, my light died as well. Should have charged that up. I got mine plugged in. I guess we'll wait for Scott to get it back. <laughs> okay. Do you have uh, other questions written out there? Um, I just got a personal question uh, for your, like when you do ultras, mm -hmm. what is your mindset and your mantra? Uh, it's way is less it intense than it was it during the... Is it different from your, like your marathons? Does, is there a change for you when you do an ultra? Yeah. Um, the, okay. it, this is in long ultras. So maybe like 50 mile to 12 hour, it kind of starts around there. My mantra becomes stay consistent, let everybody else die. Okay. I'm not here to push hard. I'm not here to grind it out. I'm here to enjoy. Uh, I don't put pressure on myself. If I need to, um, I've, I've only DNF'd once in my entire life and I've been running for like competitively for like 28 years. Wow. Only one, only one DNF. Um, so, but I'm not scared of it. I have no problem pulling out of a race if I'm not enjoying it, if I don't feel like it, if I get hurt, anything like that, I'll pull out and I don't care. I just don't okay. care. I'm there to enjoy and have fun. And the, my race tactic in these really long runs that take 12 hours, 24 hours, 98 hours, for goodness sake, um, when it's that long, I'm not racing it just for completion, 98, 200 miles, yikes. Um, I just want to stay consistent, let everybody else die. I actually have a video on my YouTube from April 2023 where I did a 12-hour race and um, it was a loop race. And my girlfriend at the time, she was there filming. And so, and she ran with me a little bit from time to time. So we got to record a bunch of this. And you can see in the, it's like, it was a 5K loop essentially. And you know, four hours into the race, I was in something like 20, 21st, 22nd place. And I was running with like the back of the Packers or the mid Packers, whatever. And, um, cause I knew about what pace I could sustain. And the guys who were way up front, they were running they were almost a lap ahead of me, but I knew that the pace that they were on would come out to about 77 miles in 12 hours. And the course record on, on this course was like 58 miles. So I'm like, there's no way. These guys went you. out so fast. I just knew. I'm like, yeah, they're a lap ahead of me four hours in, but that's because they're going way too fast. So I knew that I could keep, um, what was it, 930 pace or 1030 pace? It was one of those. Um, I knew that I could about do that on a course like this for 12 hours. So I just kept that metronome, metronome, metronome. Okay. Six hours in, I was uh, in like 10th place, whatever. Nine hours into a 12-hour race, I was, I was in like seventh place. And it seems like I'm not going to catch these guys. But then with only three hours to go, I just kept that metronome. And I came around and I was in third place. I didn't even know. I didn't even see these guys because they just dropped off. I didn't pass them. They just like stopped at the aid station. Then I came around one more lap and... My then girlfriend said to me, do you know what place you're in? I was like, what? She goes, you're in first. I'm like, wow. what? What? I didn't pick up the pace. I didn't have a strategy. I didn't pick people off. I didn't do anything. I just stayed consistent and let the 21 people who were ahead of me or the 20 ahead of me, just let them all die. And I just stayed consistent. I ended up uh, breaking the course record on that course. I didn't win with one lap to go. One of the guys who had given up, he stopped at the aid station. He, he saw that I had passed him, so he went, hey, he picked himself up by his bootstraps, took a shot or something maybe, and just sprinted by me, and, and he won. We both set the course record, but he crossed the line before me. Um, that's how it played out, but the, the point of that story is, in ultras, my mantra is, um, don't go out too fast, conservative, conservative, slow drip it, conserve your energy, slow drip. You can always push at the end, and if you want right. to be competitive, let the others die, let them come to you. So... I have two questions. So uh, the first okay. one is, is she still your girlfriend? No. He said then, then girlfriend. Oh, so. you said then girlfriend. I wasn't. Yeah. Love her very much. Great girl. She, who knows? She may even watch this. She was my video editor for a while. Um, no hard feelings at all. Love her. Great. Okay. Just, uh, you know, our, it ran okay. its course. Yeah. Right. Sam and I are Things both, happen. Things Sam happen. Sam and I are both married um, yeah. many, many years. 
So uh, I've been married more than half my life, and it's been. Well, I'm on my fourth marriage, so. <laughs> oh, I got it right the first time. Ha! <laughs> cool. <laughs> I didn't know Thanks that. That's that. Sam. I didn't. Oh know yeah. That. Well, the military chewed three of them up, so. Okay. Um, the the other question was we talked about getting faster at the end. So everybody talks about a strategy for marathoning is negative splitting, right? Running the second half of the race faster than the first. That's hard to do. Do you have any tips for telling when people say, hey, you tell someone they should negative split, they're going to say, well, how do I do that? And it can't be, oh, just walk for the first 13 miles and then start running. There's a, you know, a pacing strategy. But I guess you learn sure. that during your workouts. What can you sustain for 13 miles that's not going to make you tired? Um, you're you're going to have practiced it before, so you should know what those paces are. And um, I guess that I answered my own question, really. Um, strategizing it and looking back on your workbook and, and your work log to see what you, what you can do. Sure. I will contribute um, two things to this that aren't written about in my book. I don't think I... I have a pacing section in my book. I don't believe so, but I do have videos on it. Um, I'll, I'll give you two things. One of them is the way to run fast is sure a negative split sort of, but when Kipchoge broke his own world record just last year, I think he ran a positive split. Wait a second, world record, positive split. Okay. It's fine because it was a very small positive split. So if you run, like you just said, if you walk the first half, of course you're gonna negative split, but it'll be like 50% faster on the back end. Eh, we didn't do the best we could. If you go out too fast and you blow up and you slow down, by how much could you slow down and not have left some in the tank? And the answer is about, you don't want the first half and the second half should be, if you get to the finish line as, fast as, as hard as you could, you gave everything you got, and the first and second half aren't different by more than 2%, you basically ran as fast as you could, regardless of if it's a negative split or a positive split. Because it's base, a negative split really just means you ran even and then kicked at the end. That's a good way to think of it. Mm -hmm. So if you ran even and then died at the very end and ran 10 seconds slower for your second half of a marathon, it's probably still about as fast as you could go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and how do people negative split? This is huge. I've got um, a, a runner who... We got him a massive PR instantaneously for, with like hardly any training, simply by fixing his pacing. And it, he's still positive split, but he had a positive split by something crazy, like 40 minute positive split in a marathon consistently wow. again and again. We'd, and it was, it was really significant because it wasn't like an even drop off is he went out way fast. And then at the end it was a tank and it was like twice, like his slowest miles were like 14 and his fastest miles were like seven. I'm like, this spread is so insane. He didn't even solve it. He didn't even get to a negative split. We just made it way of a less positive split and he took something like 25 minutes off of his marathon like that. Wow. And then he did it, he did it again That's recently. And he still ran a, it's still an issue. He's still positive splitting. But if you can negative split with a less than 2% difference, you did run a, the best race that you could. Okay. How do you do it? It's, uh, I believe it's humility. You I agree. Because if you, especially if you're good, especially. Especially if you're, if you're, if you could be up there winning or top of your age group or whatever like that, it kind of sucks to see 10 of your peers that you know that you could beat and you're behind them. I could be up. I'm faster than that person. I shouldn't be way behind them. So your ego kind of takes over. Yeah, but they're going too fast too. Now everybody's going too fast and everybody dies. And you see this, there's a great video on YouTube, not by me. Someone did a, an a analysis of the pacing at the Berlin marathon. I think it was Berlin where Kiptum set his world record. Is that right? Yes, mm -hmm. I believe so. It was October. Okay. okay, so assuming it was Berlin, I think it was. There was a pace analysis. This guy was looking at trying to catch cheaters. He's got a channel on this. How do you catch cheaters? You look at the splits and see at any point where they're running like way faster, like a two-minute mile or something, you can kind of catch a cheater. And he has, has a graph of all everybody who ran Berlin Marathon, what their pacing was. And virtually everybody has a massive, pretty significant positive split. Then there's a group of people who have a very even line and that's the elite field, men and women. And there was like one runner who had a negative split, like one, and that was Kiptum. So Kiptum does the opposite of everybody else. And the elites still do basically the opposite of everybody else. You going out too fast is going to cost you quite a bit. And it takes humility because if you're going out slower and everybody else is going out faster, that means there's a big gap 
and that sucks for the ego. So right, you see a lot of people passing you, but you have to learn. They're passing me now, but now is, it doesn't matter. At mile eighteen, I'm going to be passing them. Their hands are exactly. They can be the medical yeah. tent, and I'm going to take a drink of water and go right by them. Well, and that's very that, rational, but emotionally, it just takes over. Right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it takes some. It takes some growing up to. Uh, it takes to discipline. discipline. It really does to understand that. Discipline. That's one thing yeah. I've been. You know, and I've seen it so many times with myself going too fast out of the box. And then taking it slow and mile 12, mile 13, I'm passing those guys that went out like, you know, racehorses. Yeah. Yep. So I, to me, for myself, it just takes discipline to know that I, as a person, have to go start off slower. And when in a marathon, when you get to mile one and you check your split and it's fast, because it's probably going to be fast for virtually everybody, have the discipline to slow it down. Because right. I remember so many times in my life, I've gone through some race, marathon, half marathon, whatever. And I, look, I see that that first mile is too fast. And I think, oh, it's fine. It's just one mile. I'll slow it down. And I think I'm slowing it down. Maybe I was 30 seconds too fast that first mile. So I slow it down. I do slow it down. But it, now I'm 20 seconds too fast. And I think I'm winning because I'm like, I slowed it down. Still 20 seconds too fast. And then six miles later, you're two minutes too fast. And you're well on your way to a blow up. Because when, right. you, see, when you see that time too fast, you should stop it immediately. Even if it means like, walk for two minutes, God forbid, right? Walk and take a gel, whatever. like slow it down, hit those metrics. Cause you're gonna, you can mess up your marathon very much in the first mile, the first 5k. Now it's not like you're gonna, it sounds extreme. It's like, oh, I still got all this time to go. Yeah, but if you're not gonna correct it, if you fail to correct your pacing by 5k or 10k, what makes us think we're gonna, I mean, that's what, it's gonna force you to correct it later. So you wanna make the correction now for all sorts of reasons, which we don't need to go into here. But instead of being forced to make a correction, correct yourself. That's the discipline that you're talking about, Sam. Yeah. Ride it right. out, and then you can always pick it up later. In a marathon, if you ran conservatively through 20 miles, you still got 10K that you can hammer, you know? That's the goal. Yeah. That, that, you know, they always say, right? Baseball doesn't start till like the eighth inning or something like that, and yeah. the race doesn't start till mile 20. And the longer the race, the more I've got uh, a runner, Megan, right now, who's uh, running one of the UTMB 100 mile races tomorrow. She might be running it now because it's they're a day ahead of us. Hey, mm -hmm. Megan. <laughs> and uh, she is uh, she is very good. This is one of the better female ultra runners in the world. Um, she is I don't want to jinx anything here because she's running this race, but um, she's on track to run a faster time than Camille Heron ran on the same course. Uh, really this yeah. girl is she runs 170 miles per week every week she's very disciplined this is a this girl is a, a badass uh, i won't say her full name here but perhaps we'll link something in the show notes later um okay i just want to tell her her story uh, a little bit here um there's so much i could talk about her training how how we got her there was actually pretty simple but the point i want to make here without getting too off track is that we talked yesterday about what's her tactic for this hundred mile and essentially it's go out conservative, let everybody else die. And it's a hundred mile race. So conservative through 50 and her conservative is like good enough to probably be winning at that point, but really conservative for her. And uh, then reevaluate. Now the race starts because you still have 50 miles. Mm -hmm. So even if you went too slow in the first 50, you got 50 miles to pick it up. It's a long way. So that's just a more extreme way of saying in the marathon at the halfway, 13, you still got 13 flipping miles to pick it up. Don't go out too fast. It will cost you on the back end. And you always have an opportunity to pick it up more and more and more and more. And if you feel you left too much in the tank, pick it up more. And as you get closer, pick it up more. And in the last mile, pick it up more. And in the last 400 sprint and in the last 100, kill yourself. You can always like ramp it up if you have more. There's no limit to that. But if you, if you fail to do that, instead of pushing it and ramping it up. And then here's, I'll, I'll leave you with this here. Um, if you run a, if you run as hard as you could, but you positive split, you ask yourself, how much faster could I have gone if I didn't mess up? But if you run as fast as you could and you negative split, you say, how much faster could I go if I went out just a little bit faster? So you still ask yourself, how much faster could I go if I didn't mess up, if I went out a little bit more aggressive? And one of those feels inspiring and one of them feels like, you messed up. 
Right. Well, that's why there's another race. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. You, you learn and then you go on. So uh, this has been an, such an inspiring conversation, Andrew. We it was certainly appreciate Andrew. Thank you so much. Your time with us. Um, we might, if you might, if you write another book, we'll uh, be happy to have you back. I don't know if you need to write another book because, by the way, everybody who's not uh, who's listening, go get Run Elite, um, Train and Think, like the greatest of all time. This is such a good book. Um, I have yes. I have dozens and dozens of running books, and this is the first one that I kind of carried around with me to the gym. Um, if I commuted to work, I would take this with me. But uh, wow, it's it's an awesome book. I'm really enjoying it. I'm learning. I'm reading things that I haven't read in other books, and that's that's why it's a good book. Because yeah. mine's books supposed like, to be here Tuesday. Good. Yeah. So Sam and I will maybe we'll just talk about the book on our next episode. Yeah. And, uh, and what we learned from it. So we appreciate your time again, Andrew. Uh, we're so excited that you agreed to talk to us, old guys. Uh, thanks, ah. everybody, for listening. Um, stay tuned for more, and we appreciate you very much. Happy running, now, Thank everyone. you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. I'm honored. Thank you so much. It was great. Bye, everybody. What great knowledge. We'll see you next time.